Amen. Go ahead and open your Bible to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 14 this morning. These are some of the richest verses that you'll find in the New Testament. When I think about these verses, I'm just going to tell you this morning, we're just going to just go straight in, okay? Not long ago, I got to go to Lambert's Cafe, number three. If you've ever been to Lambert's, you know what it's about. Lambert's is the place that they don't bring you a plate when you enter. You put out your napkin and they put fried okra on it. You don't even have to wait for a plate. It's called the home of throwed rolls. They don't carry the roll to you. They make you look up and they chunk it at you. And they are wonderful. And when I go there, I don't waste time on appetizers. I don't go there too often, but I go there to throw down. That's what you do at Lambert's. You eat as much as you can, as, as quickly as you can, and that's just how it goes. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at these verses, and we're just going to dive right into them. We don't even have time to grab a plate. We're going to look at them because they address what I believe is the greatest need that every human being possesses. They're going to be met in these verses right now. The greatest desire, the greatest need that we have is what it means to have a relationship with God. How are we to be right with Him? And there's three key words, mega words, that we've been talking about as we've been walking through the book of Galatians. I hope you'll remember them. I hope you'll never forget them. They are wonderful words. The word justification, that legal term that means that you are innocent. It's the opposite of condemnation. It means that when God looks upon you, he declares you to be one who has, it's as if you have never sinned. It's what's necessary if you're going to be found in favor with God is for you to be justified before him, for him to declare you to be not guilty. It's so important that we understand this word. So Paul gives us this word, the doctrine of justification. But it's not the only mega word. Last two weeks ago, we talked about another mega word, sanctification. That after you become a believer, this is a word that is beautiful to you. You're thankful for it. The word literally means to be consecrated, to be set apart for a holy purpose. And when you became a believer in Jesus, God did such a work in you, it began a process in your life of changing you into who he is, into Jesus himself. If you think about, I was thinking of it this week, I got not too long ago, Allie and I were on a walk, and I saw a beautiful butterfly. I don't know if you noticed if you go out on the Silver Comet Trail, like I love to do, it is a season of caterpillars. There was a certain week, it's as if I cannot stop but step on them. They were everywhere. But what's true of a caterpillar, those nasty little worms, is that they go into a, 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 a cocoon, and after they've been in the cocoon, they come out and what you have emerged is something that's glorious and beautiful in a butterfly. And you know what I've never seen? I've never seen a butterfly decide, I think I want to go back to that tent that I broke out of and live in it for a while. You never see them do that. When they get out of the cocoon, their life is never the way it once was. And that's what Paul tells us for a believer who's growing in Christ. 
We don't revert back to the effort of abiding in the law to grow us. We dive deeper into Jesus, that Christianity is not about trying harder. It's about trusting and having deeper faith. The word of sanctification is beautiful. Today, there's another mega word that we're going to look at. It's the word redemption. This is so important to every believer. It literally means to buy off or to set free of a payment of price. And the root word for redemption is the Greek word agora, which means marketplace. And when Paul wrote it, I'm sure he had in his mind a vision of the slave auction that would be found in ancient Rome where human beings would be sold to the highest bidder. And this word redemption declares, just like in that scene, that a person has been, and remember this, bought with a price. Now I share these words with you because of how important they are. Every Christian, as he grows and becomes a deeper follower of Jesus, will find these words to be some of the most precious words that will ever escape your mouth. They are some of the most beautiful words to ever see written on a page. These words explain a desire that God has placed in the heart of every one of us. The desire to be right with Him. The desire to be in His good favor. And God has put that desire in all of us. You see reflections of it all over the place. You see reflections of it even in our relationship of how we long to be in good favor with one another. I've never met someone that says, I just want to be alone and away from anyone. God has given us a desire to be in favor if you are a parent and a child in that relationship together. He wants us to be in that relationship with friends that are closer than a brother. He wants us to be in that relationship in our marriages of husband and wife, even at work. The relationship that we share in, if we're an employee with our boss. All these things come together. We see waves of it in our lives. And it all reflects the fact that whenever we think about the way we want to be in favor with others... It points us to our greatest need, which is to be in favor with God. The way that John Stott writes about this favor, that when we are accepted by him, when we are justified by him, we live our life, and listen to this, I love it, underneath his smile. And that's what we long for. God has placed this deep in our heart to find ultimate fulfillment in being found in right favor with God. So how then do we live under the Lord's smile? Look at these verses they tell us. Verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Here's what I want you to remember every time you think about Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14. The only way that you can be justified by God, which means the only way you can be accepted by Him, be in His favor, which we desire to live our life under His smile, is for your life to be redeemed. It's the only way. And as we work our way through these verses, it's important for us, before we even think about verse 10, to remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago and how Paul wrote about the Lord in Galatians chapter 3, verse 9. The blessing of God belongs to those who have the faith of Abraham. And this is a wonderful thing. This is what brings light and life into your life. But now, in verse 10, comes the contrast. If you or I or anyone else, if we are relying on our own performance in fulfilling and doing the deeds commanded by the law to somehow, by that performance, earn God's favor, then I want you to hear me clearly. You, right now, if that's your salvation, if that's what you're depending on, your effort to be right with God, for you to be holy enough to meet His standard, then you, right now, are under the curse. When we read of this curse in verse 10, it immediately draws our mind to the curse that came to humanity because of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But if you're familiar with the Torah, the books of Jewish law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you'll immediately remember the blessings and the curses that are written by Moses in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. In these chapters you have all 12 tribes of Israel, and they are divided into two camps. Six of those tribes went to Mount Gerizim, and the other six tribes went to Mount Ebal. Both parties would then face each other, kind of like the north and the south part of the stadium at, in Athens at Sanford Stadium, and they're facing each other. And if you've ever been, you remember how if you've ever done it, you know that the cheers, one side says Georgia and the other side says Bulldogs, and they go back and forth, and I tolerate it. You know? If you've ever been there and you've ever seen that, that's similar to the scene. The two camps of the tribes of Israel on these two different mountains, and both are facing each other, and one is crying out, attesting to the blessings of God, while the other are speaking to the curses of going against God. So Mount Gerizim's crew were ratifying the blessings. Mount Ebal's crew are recalling the curses, the consequences of disobedience. And as they would do so, which by the way, the majority of chapter 27 is about the curses. And you have more to do with the curses of disobedience than do the blessing in that text. And as they would cry out the curses, they would cry out in a united, Amen. Let it be. If we disobey God, may these curses fall on us. And anyone who would do such a thing. Now the blessing shouted from Mount Gerizim 
That's really the kind of blessings that you read about in Galatians chapter 3 for a believer in Christ. All the blessings we talked about. The blessing that you have in the fact that we have the Holy Spirit. But then the curses of Mount Ebal. This is the focus of our text beginning in verse 10. These curses. And interestingly, the last of these recorded curses that you find that Moses writes about in Deuteronomy chapter 27, the last one in the last verse of that chapter, verse 26, is what is quoted right here by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, here it is, a quotation of Deuteronomy 27, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, And do them. So clearly, the point of verse 10 is that while the law has its purposes, which it does, while the law contains, listen to me, church, while the law contains the holiness of God, the law cannot produce that holiness in our lives. So cursed is everyone or anyone who does not abide by all the things it says in Deuteronomy written in the book of the law. All of them. Underline that word all. Helps you remember how to interpret this text right. Because to not be under the curse of the law, if you were to fall out from underneath that curse with the only way to do it, without what we're going to find that Christ has done, the only way to do it is by fulfilling the law with perfection. That's what the law would require. So what is the law then? As we read about it in this text, it brings this curse. What is the law? What does it do? Well, the law, as Paul writes of it, it deals with the commands and the requirements of God as we have them given to us in the Bible that came to God's people through Moses. And as you read about that in The first five books of the Old Testament, you'll find in the the law, you'll find the moral laws of God, like the Ten Commandments. You'll find the ceremonial laws of God regarding proper worship and how we are to approach the Lord in His holiness and in who He is. You also find the civil laws of God that give punishment for crimes. It shows how we're to live in the community with one another. So you'll find those moral laws, the ceremonial laws, you'll find the civil laws. In fact, Jewish rabbis have reckoned that the law of the Torah, which is those first five books of your Old Testament, they contain 242 positive commands and 365 prohibitions. So that's what the law is. But what does the law do? Well, according to Chapter 3, verse 10, as we read about the law, that if we don't follow it to perfection, we're underneath the curse. The purpose of the law, according to Paul in chapter 3, is that the law is what exposes our sin. That it is because of the law of God that we know the places that we have disobeyed and going against that law. If you want to know what that looks like, I love the way that David Platt explains it in a book that he wrote giving commentary to these verses. He says that this is very similar to what happens in our homes with our children. Because our kids 
are so cute, aren't they? They're so beautiful. We love to talk about how wonderful they are. But don't think that they are innocent even for a second. Our kids have sinful hearts. But these sinful hearts are not exposed until we give them a command that they do not want to do. Until I look at one of my daughters and say, hey, sweetheart, I want you to do this. And then my daughter answers back to me, no. Until that happens, their sinful heart isn't put on display. But the command is what brings that sinful heart to the surface. And likewise, God has given us his law so that it can expose the sinful hearts in each and every one of us. So the law exposes our sin. That's something that it does. The law also intensifies our sin. We're not going to spend much time here, but we're going to look at it next week in chapter 3, verse 19. It shows that all we deserve as we see the intensity and the darkness of our sin, the only thing we deserve is to receive God's judgment. And if the law does what it can do, and if all God had given us was the law, we didn't have anything else in the Bible but just God's law that we could not measure up to, that we could not meet. I want you to hear me. We would be utterly and completely hopeless because we would be under the curse with no hope of ever being anything else but under that curse. So this is what the law does. Now look with me in verse 11. It tells us what the law does not do. The law does not justify us. Do you see what it says? Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So it puts it very clearly there. The law does not justify us. Why is that? Because we haven't followed it to perfection. We are indeed lawbreakers. No. For the justified, which is, remember, one of our mega words that we love so much, justified or for the righteous, it says, for the righteous shall live not as perfect law-abiding people that have never broken the law because it's not possible for us to live that way. Instead, the just or the righteous, as it's the quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, shall live by faith. Now, I hope if you've been here and you've been overwhelmed by the curse and you felt it and you've wondered when is the hope going to be given to us pastor where do we find it now things are about to start to make a turn there's just some ray of lights that are penetrating the darkness the dawn is starting to break it sure did for martin luther when he first read habakkuk 2 4 the righteous shall be lived by faith he was a monk living in a monastery he didn't understand what that verse meant at all when he first read it. And later he went through a period of illness and depression that was very deep. As he could not get past the fact that he was under a curse. There's nothing he could do about it to alleviate his concern there and the depth of his con conviction. It was just so heavy on his heart. I've heard stories about he would go off to his quarters. He would lash himself over and over again to try to give himself some sort of freedom from his pain and suffering, his 
priest that he would go and confess his sins to would get so frustrated with him because he would spend hours giving hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sins there in the monastery. He would, he would give them over and confess them all the time. He just couldn't get any relief. But in this illness, he was lying in his bed in Italy, fearing he was about to die, knowing he was far from God, and he found himself repeating over and over again, the righteous will live by faith. And God healed him. He recovered, and then he went to Rome. And while he was in Rome, he visited one of the famous churches that were there, that was there. And the Pope in that day had promised an indulgence, forgiving the sin of any pilgrim who mounted the tall staircase in front of the church. If you paid your money, that's what an indulgence is. And then if you climb that staircase, you can have your sin, or maybe even on behalf of someone else who's already in purgatory. Their sins can be forgiven too. So people were flocking to that staircase to climb it. They didn't just do what the Pope requested. They would climb it on their knees, pausing to pray and kiss the stairs along the way for good measure. Luther's son later wrote the following of that experience for his father, and this is what he said. As he, speaking of his dad, repeated his prayers on that ladder and staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk came suddenly to his mind. The just shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers, returned to Wittenberg. He took this as the chief foundation of his doctrine. And Luther later said this, Before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with him. But when by the Spirit of God I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. And I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. As Luther was trying to reckon with the difference of how faith is what's necessary to be justified, how it's so different from um, uh, from, from the works of the law, and the two are completely different. This is one of the things he said as he was contemplating those truths. Trying to be justified by the law, which by the way is like earning your way to heaven, do enough good things to where God is somewhat impressed and lets you go into heaven. Trying to be justified by the law is like counting money out of an empty purse. It's like eating and drinking from an empty dish or cup. It's looking for strength and riches where there is nothing but weakness and poverty. Laying a burden on someone who is already oppressed to the point of collapse. It's like trying to spend a hundred gold pieces and not having even a penance. It's Paul here. He's showing us. He's leading us down the road. How then are we to find favor with God? How do we have this life-changing time that we understand the significance that the just shall live by faith? How can we be born again into a new man? While he's given us that, do you see what he's doing? He's taking dead aim at the legalistic Judaizers that are bewitching those believers in Galatians. They're trying to change the gospel into a totally different gospel, saying it's Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus the Jewish law. So then in verse 4, he revisits the difference in the two. He says in verse, I mean verse 12 rather, I'm sorry. In verse 12, he shows the difference in the two. That the law is not faith. That while those who are trying to look to circumcision and other things, 
They're maybe identifying the right problem, which is sin, the sinful failure that we all have to keep God's law that exposes our sin. They're trying to identify the right problem, but they're looking to the wrong solution. They can just try harder, fulfill the law, achieve a standard of obedience. What Paul is telling us in verses 11 and 12 is that the righteous live. The righteous are given life, not by obedience to the law, but only by faith. So in chapter 3, verse 12, he quotes from Leviticus 18.5. Do you see what he says there? But the law is not of faith, verse 12. Rather, the one who does them, the law, he says, shall live by them. He's not saying that you can find life by living by the law. Well, I'll take that back. If you could live your life without ever breaking it at one time, then yes, there's life there. It's significant that you remember that because we're about to enter into a discussion of the one who did do that. But he's the only one. Biding by the law does not bring life. It only brings condemnation. It only leaves us under the curse. You can't live a perfect life abiding by the law. It's impossible in our human frailty since the curse that came when Adam and Eve sinned and inherit, we inherited their sin nature. And because of that, if you're depending upon the law to give you life, you'll never have it. You won't ever find it. No one can do that because we're already sinners. We're already separated from God. We are all born not under the favor of the smile of God. We're born under the curse that we inherited. Thanks to our father Adam. And in this, if this is all we have, again, let me remind you, we have no hope. Because none of us are perfect. We've all blown it. Jew or Gentile, all of us. I like the way that John Stott writes of this. We may strive and struggle to keep the law and to do good works in the community or the church, but none of these things can deliver us from the curse of the law which rests on the lawbreaker. You cannot keep the law. But thankfully, as we're about to read from verses 13 and following, there is someone who can. Because while, when left to ourselves, we are under the curse, the next truth is that Christ, now check this, became the curse. That's astonishing. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What we have, church, in verse 13 is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you see what he says at the end? A quotation from Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is everyone, the Bible says, who is hanged on a tree. Now you see why this was such a stumbling block for those faithful Jews and 
who were abiding in the, or they thought they were, according to the law that they so deeply cared for, that Paul later said was all rubbish. My goodness wasn't ever good enough. But why was Jesus such a stumbling block? It's because he was hung on a tree and cursed as everyone by God who was hung on a tree. There's no way in their mind that the Redeemer, that the Anointed One, the Messiah would ever be hung on a tree. They could not get their mind around that. That's why I think Paul could not ever even look to Jesus and see him for who he was before the Damascus Road experience. But what he did not understand is that Christ had to be accursed. And that the curse that Jesus bore when he went to Calvary's cross was not for his own sin. But he was cursed for Paul's sin. He was cursed for all the disciples' sin. He was cursed for all of the sin of those who mocked him and beat him and scorned him. He was cursed for their sin, but I want you to understand, he was cursed for my sin. He was cursed for your sin too. It was not for anything he had done, but he became sin. He took on our curse for us. That's astounding. When you think about what then he did when he gave his life on Calvary's cross, I'm amazed at all the places in our culture that you find whispers of the gospel in the stories that we love to read or even in the stories that we even watch on the big screen on movie theaters everywhere. I'm kind of tired of the Marvel movies, I'll be honest. We've had about 4,700 of them in the last three years. If you have Disney Plus, you've probably seen them. I did really like the Avenger movies, how they ended that season when they had Infinity War and they had Endgames, the last two in the series. They were good. The Avengers, if you remember, were the good guys. Thanos was the bad guy and all of his little minions. Thanos was on this mission to obtain all the Infinity Stones, if you Remember about them. I don't even know what all of them are. They're different colors. They would go and get them. And they'd put them in this glove. And then it made him the most powerful being in the universe to have all of these stones that were of this immense power. He was getting them everywhere he could. And then he would get them. And that's what made him so hard to beat. And the Avengers had to go against him. Because whoever got all the stones became the most powerful of them all. And if you saw the end of the Infinity War... The bad guy gets them all. It's terrifying. He's probably the meanest bad guy I've ever seen. He'll give you nightmares. Well, one of the stones that I do remember, one of the infinity stones is a stone called the Soul Stone. It was kept on a distant planet called Vormir. And of all the stones... I believe this is the one that was the most costly stone to obtain. Because if you watch the movie, I don't mean to be a spoiler, but it's not the end of it, but part of it, you just, the only way a person can get that stone, the soul stone, is for someone that is in the group to give up his or her life and go over a cliff so the soul stone, soul stone could be received. 
And in the movie, The Infinity War, the evil villain Thanos sacrifices his daughter Gamora to obtain the soul stone. And you know how the time machine thing works in the last one. In the end game, the last one, it required one of the Avengers to offer her life, Black Widow, to go off of the cliff and to offer her life freely. And she did it so that the Avengers could get that soul stone and that Thanos could be defeated, which he was. I tell you, there's just something about the waves of redemption that you find all throughout our culture. It finds itself into the storylines that we go to the movies and watch because it's so captivating. It's the greatest story that's ever been told, and it's amazing that it's true. And it all is based off of the finished work of Jesus that was based on the foundation of the world. That through dying on the cross, Jesus redeems the eternal part of us, our souls, from the curse. So redeemed is our mega word for the day. If you remember, in the slave auction auction of guilty sinners, each of us was put up for sale to the highest bidder. And in steps Jesus, who brought together the holiness of God and the horror of sin and the depth of God's divine grace as he accepted our curse and died on a tree in our place. And the word redemption declares that we have been bought with a price. We are not saved by Jesus by some method that didn't cost Jesus anything. The payment of our sin cost the life of Jesus himself. And that's amazing. That Jesus became our curse. He's our redeemer. And when we go to him in faith, we can be redeemed. And then verse 14 tells us that when the curse is broken, the blessings follow. If you look back in your Bible in Isaiah 44, I really believe Isaiah 44 was in Paul's mind when he wrote verse 14 of Galatians chapter 3. In Isaiah 44 verse 3, the prophet prophesies of a day when the blessing of God will be given to us by the pouring out of His Spirit. And in Isaiah 44, 3, it says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the ground, and I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So the blessing of Abraham is equated to the blessing of the Spirit. And thanks to Christ, Thanks to those who have the faith of Abraham, who have put their faith in Jesus, we have the Spirit dwelling in us. In church, Paul says that this is an immense blessing. This is the answer to the drought that can befall our thirsty souls. Jesus clears the way then. Do you see what he did? While we were under the curse But he became the curse, and through faith in him, we can be redeemed by him. He clears the way so that the curse can be reversed in our lives and in the lives of anyone who would trust him as Savior and Lord. 
So the Christmas carol that sings of the blessing of Christ going to the ends of the earth, far as the curse is found, that's where Jesus needs to be taken. It is true. It's all true. It's what Jesus has done. And this is the blessing that comes to us in faith. So here's the summary of it all. We are saved not by obeying the law. We're saved by faith. Believing in what Christ has done personally for each of us. Everything related to these three mega words, it all comes together in the truth that the gospel isn't about trying. The gospel is about trusting. So let me give you a few takeaways. The heart of all of this is our need to go to God in saving faith. It's all about faith. And when you're wondering, what is faith? Faith is a needy cry for God. Faith is reaching up a hand to God, knowing if He doesn't take your hand, you are utterly and completely doomed. So it's about crying out to God in our need. It's not about trying to impress Him with what we can do. That's what it means to go to him in faith. And it's by grace alone through faith alone. Something else we always need to remember is we always need to remember the cost and the horror of our sin. Don't ever stop looking at your sin and seeing it for how utterly putrid and awful it truly is. No matter how great or small or how insignificant or how we like to talk about little white lies or all the rest, the things we like to drop in sarcastic ways and maybe hurt people on social media, the things that we like to say that in, a, in jest and, and we, we, we meant something as a joke or something of the rest and we just don't take it serious. Even the greater sins like the awful sin of of abusing your wife's trust through adultery, whether it's actual physical adultery or through giving yourself over in your mind, all of those things, all of the sin that the Bible talks about, we need to see how horrible it is. We need to never just get comfortable with it. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what does every sin deserve? And here's the answer. Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. And this might not be popular in today's world, but it's true. Because God's word says it's all true. Each of us stands guilty before God's law. And it's not about trying to obey him. Doing more things for him to impress him. Going to church, trying to pray more, trying to be good enough, read your Bible more, all this things if you do it in your own strength your own resources to try to impress God and check a box you'll never find it the answer back will always just be guilty as charged it's not about what we do for him it's about what Jesus has done and accomplished for us and deepening our faith in him and last I hope we never Forget the central place of the cross of Christ in our lives. I hope we never get tired of hearing sermons about Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. I hope we're amazed at the fact that Jesus has redeemed us. 
I hope you're blown away at the fact that the curse that you and I deserved, He who never did anything, He took that curse and He went to the cross and He took it all the way to the cross and to His death so that we could be freed from that curse. And every time you think of that, the only thing we can do in response is just give thanks to Him. To be blown away by what he's done. To surrender everything of who we are. To say, Jesus, you love me so much. I cannot believe it. I hope we never grow tired of hearing about the central place of the cross. And let that shape the attitude of every one of us. The only rightful attitude of every believer, no matter how much we suffer, is thankfulness of what Jesus has done. Even when we're fighting for it, to be thankful to live a life of continued thankfulness of all that Jesus has done for us. We deserve the curse. But we get grace. It's amazing. The attitude of the Christian is always thankfulness, but the power of your Christianity is faith. The faith that gives you a home in heaven is the faith that grows you into being more and more like Jesus. And it makes you ready when one day you're going to see him. It's faith that helps you overcome habitual sin in your life. The stuff that you're always thinking about when you come to the communion table. It's not trying harder. It's trusting in a deeper way. And living your life in a growing, intimate relationship with him. Oh, I just long for that, don't you? Do you know Jesus that way? It's not just a bunch of stuff that you do. For 21 plus years I've been married to Allie. I don't do things as her husband because I want you to think I'm a good husband or I don't want, I want her to think I'm... I do it because I love her. We live our life in growing faith in Jesus because we love him more and more and more with each passing day. And it's in that relationship with Christ that you become more and more of what God wants you to be. All of that's about faith. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. I'm so thankful for Galatians chapter 3. I'm so thankful for these words that are so central. These mega words to our faith. Right now, I want you just to think about how wonderful it is if you trust in Him that you have been redeemed. That you are on the slave market of sin and Jesus saw you there and He paid the price. He was the highest bidder and He bought you. He loves you so much. Think about the doctrine of adoption in Romans chapter 8. That He chose you the foundations of the world to know him to be found holy and blameless in his sight what a blessing what a gift I pray that as you are in all that you have been redeemed that you just live your life knowing it's about deepening your faith and your love for him but if there's anyone in this room the message of the gospel is that anyone who's not found in Christ you are trying in some way, shape, form, to one day be right with God and to be under His smile. It will only come if you surrender your life to Christ. To confess Him to be your Lord. 
to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he is the only way unto salvation, the only way you'll ever be right with him is to be redeemed. If there's anyone here today that needs to trust in Christ, just admit that you're a sinner. Just admit that you're far from God, that you have no hope of ever being right with Him, but you are amazed at what Jesus has done. And right now, just right where you are in your heart, just trust in the finished work of Christ, in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. When you confess Him as Lord and believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you've done that for the first time, I want you to come and tell me about it. I'd love to pray with you and talk to you about what it means to become a Christian. Let's just be thankful for all that he's done. And right now, let's pray that our faith in him will deepen. And in Jesus' name we pray. Man, let's all stand.